Mark. Last week, we started with the first line of Mark. And I somehow managed to talk for 30 minutes about like seven words. So here's what we're going to do today. Today we we covered one verse, one actually line of Mark. This is all intro. Today we're going to cover the whole book. The entire book. So I don't know what you've got going on today. But settle in. No, just kidding. We're just going to do a little quick, fast. Sometimes with, with church and with studying the Bible, we can get into the little nitty-gritty details, right? We can look at one word, one phrase, and just be like nerding out. But what's really good, before we jump into all this, is to take a step back and see the whole picture. What does Mark say? It's kind of like a work of art. We recently just bought a a work of art from a friend of ours. And every time we see it, it, it's just like, you see it from, like, you take a step back and you just take the whole thing in. It's just beautiful. And, and, And ultimately, that's what this is. This is... A, 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 you know, an account, a biography written a long time ago. And it's easy to miss stuff. And we can get right into it and start unpacking it, but I think it's really important for, for us to see the whole thing. So here's what we're going to do really briefly. Background. Talk about the background. We're going to overview the whole book really quick. Don't freak out. We're not going to read the whole thing. We're just going to overview it really quick. And then we're going to talk about the implications. Okay? So here we go. Background. Um, this book is written by a guy named Mark. No. Let's pray. No. It's a guy named Mark, and he's a figure that's actually all over the New Testament. Um, he's the son of a wealthy widower from Jerusalem. Uh, we think, we being people who, I don't know, I, they think... Scholars think um, that Mark Mark's house was actually used for the Last Supper. There's just a lot of, of hints and clues for that. Um, we don't know that for sure, but we do know his house was used for prayer. Uh, do you remember that passage? And if you're familiar with, uh, I think it's Acts chapter 12. Peter um, is thrown in prison, and, and there's 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 this amazing experience where Peter is, is set free um, and um, they go to a house for prayer and it's actually Mark's house. So Mark's actually all through, and the first time we actually read about Mark is actually in Acts chapter 12 as well. It's like this journey that he goes on with Paul and Barnabas and then there's this um, they have like a tiff they have like a thing, right? Um, you can read it for yourself. And, and, and then they make up down the road. But it all gets patched up. But there's like this thing. And, and then we, we know that Mark is not um, alone in this. Mark, Mark wasn't one of the original 12 uh, apostles. But he was, he was in that community um, later on. Uh, this is actually something we have from uh, a guy named Papias, the bishop of Hierapolis. Um, And he says this, Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately everything that he remembered. 
without, however, recording in order what was either said or done by Christ. So what he's saying is, is that Mark wasn't an eyewitness to Jesus. He was cruising around with Peter, and he was Peter's interpreter, and he wrote down what Peter saw about Jesus. For neither did he hear the Lord, nor did he follow him, but afterwards, as I said, attended Peter, who adapted his instructions to the needs of his hearers, but had no design of giving a connected account of the Lord's oracles. So then Mark made no mistake. While he thus wrote down some things as he remembered them, for he made it his one care not to omit anything that he heard or set down any false statement therein. So this is, this is a little bit of an idea of who Mark was um, and how he was connected to Jesus. So the leading theory is that Peter's the eyewitness source for all this material that Mark wrote down. And Mark was a brilliant literary genius, and we'll talk about that here in a second. Um, but, but I just want to take a pause here really quick. And I just want to say, don't underestimate the power of telling your story. Your story is unique to you. Your perspective, how you came to know Jesus, what, what you've been through in your life is really powerful and it's really important. And sometimes I think we feel we need to have um, this kind of salesmanship thing about Jesus, right? Like we need to have our little slick lines uh, about telling people about Jesus. And that is not the case at all. In fact, in our day and age, that's actually a super huge turnoff to people. I would encourage you to tell your stories. And if you're not used to telling your stories, tell your story to someone who also follows Jesus. And I don't think we're in a good habit of doing that. In fact, you know, it's one of those things. I was in a conversation uh, recently with some church planters. And there's, there's, a, there's an interesting shift and in trend happening in churches. Before, it was, uh, churches were built around this idea of attracting people. Like, if we do something really cool, okay, we're going to get people to come. That may still be a thing, and it may still work for some people, but what we've found as a church is that we don't want to be a church that and tells you, hey, invite people to Sunday morning, because that's where all the action is. <laughs> we want you to invite people to dinner. I don't care if you invite people here. And I, that, that might sound really weird for a pastor to say. I mean, that's fine. You can invite people here. But that's not the goal. The goal is for you to invite people to dinner. Invite people into your life. Tell your story. Right? So the date of all this. So Mark, this is really important. Mark is being written, most scholars believe, in the mid-60s. A.D. Not the 1960s. <laughs> I just want to make clear, some of you survived the 60s, like Dan, and uh, those aren't the 60s that we're talking about. Um, in the 60s AD, Israel was at war with Rome. It was called the Jewish Revolt. The Jewish people had gotten sick and tired of being oppressed by Rome. And in the middle of the 60s, it was, it was a nasty time. Nero was the emperor, and he was going insane. 
he was going insane, and he set fire to the city of Rome and blamed it on Christians. Now, a few years later, Nero was declared insane and actually declared an enemy of the state, and he committed suicide. But that's just a little picture and a snapshot. Listen to this. This is a Roman historian, Tacitus. He says this. The history on which I am entering is that of a period of period rich in disasters, terrible with battles, torn by civil struggles, horrible even in peace. Four emperors fell by the sword. So after Nero, four emperors, emperors tried to claim power, claimed that they were the son of God, and all four of them fell by the sword. There were three civil wars, more foreign wars, and often both at the same time. There was, there was success in the east, misfortune in the west. Besides the manifold misfortunes that befell mankind, there were prodigies in the sky and on earth, warnings given by thunderbolts, and prophecies of the future, both, both joyful and gloomy, uncertain and clear. Can you imagine... This is a scary time to be alive, let alone to be a follower of Jesus. And into this context, this is the audience of Mark, okay? They're not just like, oh, religious freedom. They're they're in a moment that is so full of of, of war and and persecution. And, And one of the things that's so interesting is Mark's writing this letter to a group of Christians who are Roman citizens. Can you imagine that? My citizenship, when Paul says my citizenship is in heaven, like how how scandalous that would have been in this day and age. And they would pass this, this book of Mark, this gospel of Mark from church, house church to house church as an encouragement. They would read it out loud. The whole thing. You guys winced that I was going to talk about the whole thing, right? So we believe that Mark is writing it in Rome to Romans. And the reason why scholars believe that is because there's a lot of things that were translated from Aramaic into Greek. Uh, there was Latin words and phrases all through it. He's very positive about the Romans within this. We'll get into some of that as well. Romans are more positive than in other gospels. And he has to explain very Jewish things all throughout the gospel. So that's why we believe that his audience was Roman Christians. And when Caesar Nero blamed the fire in Rome on on the Christians, he unleashed this empire-wide persecution. Millions of followers of Jesus were put to death um, and, and for sport. Listen to this. This is all from Tacitus. First, then, the confessed members of the sect, Christians, were arrested. Next, on their disclosures, vast numbers were convicted, not so much on the count of arson as for hatred of the human race. 
and derision accompanied their end. They were covered with wild beast skins and torn to death by dogs. They were fastened on crosses and when daylight failed, were burned to serve as lamps for light. This is the context that Mark has written. This is the air they're breathing. And we believe actually later on in verse 13 of chapter 1, there's this little phrase that that some believe that could be a nod to, to those who have seen and witnessed and seen their family members uh, devoured by dogs. Um, there's this little line when Jesus is in, heading into the wilderness to be tempted. It says, among the wild animals. And some people believe that is like a, a little secret mark. Hey, saying, hey, hey, Jesus is with you. Jesus is with you as you're being, as you're seeing your loved ones being torn apart. So, as you can imagine, this isn't a book for people that feel like they have it all together, right? This isn't a gospel. This isn't a, an account of Jesus' life for those who are, 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 you know, just living their best life now. They're suffering. They're, they're, they're running. They're scared. They're huddling together as communities, worshiping together. And, and, and here's what we need to understand as Western American Christians— um, there is Christianity is being persecuted around the world, and um, there's this one article I read by a non-believer that said the Arab Spring was actually the beginning of the Christian winter in some places. Two thirds of Iraq Christians have left or fled, uh, and and here's the thing. Um, there is a matter of cultural shame that we experience as followers of Jesus. Some of that we've done to ourselves. But some of that just comes from this. It's a very spiritual thing. We'll get into that here down the road. But the last thing we're going to do is genre. So author, date, genre. Genre, it's a biography. It's a biography about Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is the central character. Not Peter, not James, not the disciples, not Pontius Pilate. Jesus is. And here's the thing, because we are Western Americans. <laughs> we tend to read the Gospels and like we're the central character in our lives. We tend to do that. And, and this is why so many of us have a hard time reading the Bible. We sit down to read the Bible, and we come to it, not intentionally, but we kind of come to it as a self-help book. Like, what can I get out of this? How can this encourage me? What, how can this motivate me? How can this, I, I, I need something to get through this circumstance in my life. And I have people sometimes that, man, I didn't get anything out of it. Because I think we're coming to the, the Gospels sometimes asking the wrong questions. We're asking questions like, how can my job get better? How can my circumstances get better? How can my marriage get better? How can, I, how can my life be more happy? And ultimately, the story of the Bible is not a story about you and me. It's not. It's about God. God is the center of the story. We're way down the list. And Mark is the story about Jesus. And we need to remember that. So really quick, you ready for the overview? 
Part one's done, part two is the overview, right? If you guys don't look alive. <laughs> Get some coffee, donuts are coming. Okay, two major sections in Mark. This is gonna sound nerdy, it's super important though. Two major sections, the first half, chapter one through eight. The second half, nine through 16, super simple, two halves, okay? The first half, all of it takes place in Galilee. So Galilee's, I'm gonna have a map next week. Galilee's up north, okay? It's, it's above the Sea of Galilee, so that whole region, okay? So the first eight chapters are all up in a very Jewish part of the world. 1916 takes place, Jesus is on his way or into the city of Jerusalem. Okay, in fact, 11 through 16 is one week. 11 through 16 takes place in one week. And so uh, some people, there's one scholar that says, the story of Mark is a passion story with an extended introduction. So most of the book of Mark, 11 through 16, is one week. It's the passion of Jesus. And the rest of it is the introduction. Okay. One through eight is basically saying the king is here and his name is Jesus. And it's all about this coming anointed king. So if you missed last week, the podcast will be up shortly, but it is about uh, what, what writers call the Incipit, which is about three stories. Okay, Eden, Israel, and Rome. And if you missed that, jump onto that. And you'll catch it. So, so chapter 1, 2 through 13 is called the prologue. It's brief. It's fast-paced. There's no baby Jesus, you know, stuff going on. There's no wise man. He just fast-forwards right to John the baptizer, um, and he gets right into it. And then at both the different blocks, the, the first half and the second half, both start with an announcement that this is Jesus, the Son of God. Okay? We'll get into all that as we go. Chapter 2 and 3, it's about Jesus' authority over nature and demons, over the Sabbath, over tradition. In chapter 4, there's kind of a break in the story, and there are parables there. And this is basically, this is what's happening and, and, and in and through Jesus, okay? Chapter 5 through 8 is, is about Jesus forming a brand new community around these 12 Disciples, and they're symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's Jesus basically saying, I'm starting a new community. And then we get to the middle of the two halves. And this is called the hinge. And this is where we're actually going to read scripture today. Woo! You're going to go finally. <laughs> Chapter 8, verse 27 through 30. This is the hinge of the entire book. Okay? Let's read this. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Now, this is a watershed moment because Peter and the disciples have just been taking this journey with him. And, and Peter's basically saying, this rabbi is more than a rabbi. This prophet is more than a prophet. This is the Messiah. 
And then in verse 30 it says this, Jesus warned them not to tell anybody. This is another theme in Mark. This is just kind of tricky. Like all this stuff happens and Jesus is like, don't tell anybody. Right? And like, okay. And it's a secret. And it's just kind of strange. And then it goes on in verse 31. He says, then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Okay, this is the first of three um, passion prophecies of Jesus. The other one happens in chapter 9. The other one happens in chapter 10. But he's driving the point home. He's like, I'm going to Jerusalem as king, but to die. Okay? So this is this important point in the whole thing. And Mark is actually saying, yes, Jesus is king. He's been saying it for eight chapters. Yes, Jesus is king, but he's not the kind of king that you think he is. He's a different king altogether. You're expecting, you're hoping for a conqueror, a deliverer, but instead of coming to conquer, he came to suffer. Instead of coming to bring judgment, he came to bear judgment. Instead of coming to punish the world for sin, okay, he came to take on sin, dying on our behalf to heal the rupture that exists between us and our Creator. And the disciples don't take the news well in this middle point. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And we talked about this a few times this fall. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely the human concerns. And then what we get is the invitation of Jesus. And this is the focus of the whole gospel. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel We'll, see, we'll save it. Jesus didn't have a PR guy. This is, this is a rough statement. This is a pretty intense statement. This is a fork in the road statement, right? A line in the sand. And, and I'm here to tell you that that is the invitation of Jesus. Not to take up arms, but to follow Jesus down this road of death burial and resurrection. He comes in as a king, chapter 12. He's riding a donkey, which is a symbol for peace, versus riding a stallion that would be the symbol for conqueror. Chapter 13 is what scholars call the little apocalypse, which is about, it's kind of everything that Revelation talks about, but for Jesus, the end of the world and for the hearers of Jesus' prophecy meant no temple. Then he's put on trial by the chief priests for sedition, arrested, executed by the Roman government. And then three days later, what happens? Resurrection. And, and then we get to this little curious passage, 16, 9 through 20, that says this may not even really be real. I mean, this passage. We're not sure what's going on with this passage. But we'll get to that down the road. 
But here's what, here's what I want you to know before we get into the final part, which is really brief. Scholars eat Mark up. Literary scholars, literary scholars. It, 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 this funny thing that happened actually in the 1970s. Uh, you know, Matthew is like the first one. It's super cool. Jesus, babies, you know, Sermon on the Mount, birds and trees and stuff. And everybody's just like, I like this Jesus guy, right? And, and so people really focused on that. And they focused on Luke. And they loved Matthew and John because they were actually disciples of Jesus. And Mark was this kind of like the, the runt of the litter, right? For many years, like people just kind of overlooked the gospel of Mark. Until a bunch of literary critics in the 1970s, they discovered the Gospel of Mark. It was like for the first time, and they were like, holy cow. The way this writer sets up Jesus and writes about Jesus is so amazing. They, they talk about Mark being a genius storyteller. and They talk about the fact that the essence of his story is like a, it's like a mystery story. Where the reader knows what's happening, but everybody else in the story, like the reader knows Jesus is God, the demons know Jesus is God, but everybody else is clueless. Like the disciples don't get it, and the chief priests don't get it, and, and like all these people really don't get it, right? And, and the families, and the, even Jesus' family's in the dark. And, and you read through it, and, and here's what I would dare you to do. Read through it one sitting. It won't take you as long as you think. And, and it's amazing. you got the disciples in chapter 4. They're like, who is this guy? And then in, six, in chapter 6, Herod asks, who is this guy? And, and then in 8, Jesus says, who do others say that I am? And who do you say that I am? And then it's like Peter is like halfway there. He's like, you're the Messiah, but that's not all of the story. It's more than just a coming anointed king, but he's also the son of God. And there's this tension all the way through. And, and, and Jesus is like, you're almost there. You almost got this. And then there's the trial in 14. And the chief priest asks Jesus, who do you say you are? And he says, he says, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, yes. And he's like, it's like, does the chief priest believe him at that point? No, he's like, blasphemy. And why is Jesus saying that, like this secret all the way through? Why is Jesus saying, don't tell anybody, shh, don't tell anybody? And, and it's like right after the death of Jesus, the secret's out. And there's this Roman centurion. In chapter 15, verse 39, I'm going to throw it on the screen, when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died he said, surely this man was the son of God. It's pretty ironic, right? First, he's a Roman military officer. If you're trying to tell a story about Jesus and give him like credibility, like that's the guy that finally spills the news right there. He's a Roman military officer who was part of the execution. And then... The second thing that's ironic is it's not after the death of the Messiah that the secret is out, that Jesus is also the Son of God. See, all throughout, Peter's like, yeah, he's the Messiah. But that tricky Son of God business, right? It's Mark's way of saying you can never truly understand God. And you can never truly understand what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God without the cross. 
And the cross is the ultimate revelation of the character of God. And and it's like on the cross, we see who God is, like what God is like, that God is like God gives himself away through self-sacrificial love. And he's Messiah and the son of God. And, And all of those words are kind of meaningless until the cross, like the cross is what. What puts all that together and all the way through the book of Mark, Jesus is redefining what it means to be Messiah and the son of God and what God is like. And ultimately, Mark is about Jesus's identity. Okay, being Messiah and the son of God. So we're done with the overview. We're done with the background. Here's the implications. To start off, we don't really get the idea of Jesus as king. Because we don't really understand what it means to have a king. We live in a democracy, which is kind of true. (laughs) Um, It's a constitutional republic, which is super different, but it's under that kind of umbrella. And what that allows us as individuals is to claim our own kingship, to have our own world, to have the four corners of our yards, and this is our kingdom. And to have our bank accounts and our things and all of our stuff. But the reality is we all have a king. We, we all have something or someone we make ultimate. Our bodies, our careers, our finances, our status. We all have something that's king. And we're all, being, we're all following or being formed Okay? Or, or discipled by someone or something. And the question is, who do we serve and who do we worship? Who do we serve and who do we worship? What do we obsess about? What is that thing? What do we obsess about? Which means the invitation of Jesus is to follow him and to follow him as king, not a life coach, a pal, not a date, <laughs> but his king. Remember those old church, Jesus is my homeboy? He's like Ashton Kusher started it, and then it got picked up by Urban Outfitters, and then it was just like, here, Jesus is my homeboy. It's like we hear things all the time. My generation is really good at Jesus is awesome, but I'm not down with the Bible, and I'm not into church. Um, Jesus is there when I need him. But there's nothing really about Jesus as king of the world. And there's nothing about this invitation to come and die. See, on the other side of the cross is resurrection. So when Jesus says, come and die, um, come and experience death, burial, and resurrection, he's saying, on the other side of that is life abundant. On the other side of that is joy and peace and hope and meaning on the other side of the cross. And that's the invitation. But here's my problem. I don't want to die. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, physically, I don't want to die either. But, like, I don't want to die to myself. I don't want a king. If I'm really being honest, I push against that all the time. Sure, I want Jesus to make my life easier, I, but I don't want to die. I want to believe, but I don't want to follow. 
Now, you know that those are not synonyms. You can believe in Jesus and not follow Jesus. It happens all the time. And it's a trend all over. It's one of the things I, I see all the time. Yes to Jesus, um, but sometimes if you listen, what you hear from people is it's not the Jesus of the Gospels. It's kind of like this junk drawer version of all things spiritual and Jesus is in there. And, and it's like a life enhancer. It's a kind of a moniker for self-help. It's like approaching the Bible as self-help. It's lumped in with Dalai Lama and yoga and karma. It's a little bit of Jesus. Great thanks. Jesus is the king of the world. Do you believe that? That's what Mark is saying. He's announcing that Jesus is the king of the world. And I criticize all that other stuff because I see all that other stuff in me. See, I want God to work for me. I want to be the main character of my story. And I think Jesus should get the, the Oscar for best supporting actor. Right? Paul says you've been bought with a price. And if you follow Jesus, then your life is a is not about your life anymore. That your life in Jesus is wrapped up into something something far more purposeful and interesting than a life that you would make on your own. Because Jesus is king. Following Jesus is about reorienting your life around Jesus. Your life now orbits Jesus in his kingdom, not yours in your kingdom. And that's the message of Mark. So we did the whole book. How do we stay focused on Jesus? I mean, staying focused on Jesus is the most important thing. Would you agree? So I have homework for you. And then we're going to come to communion. So Dan, you can, you can pop up. You can be ready. Dan. Here's what I'm going to encourage you to do this week. I would encourage you, this is going to take some very serious planning on your part. I would encourage you to read the entire book of Mark in one sitting. Probably take you about 40 minutes, maybe an hour. Coffee shop, whatever. Read the entire book of Mark in one sitting. Wrap yourself into the story. Don't, don't try to see yourself in the story, but put yourself in the story. As what, is, what is Jesus saying? And there's two questions that I, I never put them on the screen, but if you want to write these down. Jesus, show me who you are. Jesus, show me who you are. And the next one is, Jesus, show me how to follow you. And just take the whole thing in. Let me pray.